Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to the segment on CTN. To learn more, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And the topic for today is creating value at scale. And our guest for today is Paul Bellack, who's the Vice President and Global CIO with Magna International. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Great, great. So uh, the topic that we picked today is because we hear a lot of organization dabbling into innovation and they are doing it incrementally. They are trying to do the big bang innovation. But then for us to be able to move in a sustained manner, especially with digital offering so much opportunity, we have to figure out a way by which we could scale this innovation and not like a flash in the pan. So that's the whole idea. How do you do that? How do you change the organizational DNA, the mindset, maybe the, the model in which you operate, the culture, and many other things? So, so for that, Paul, the first question is, do you think us doing those three-year-long innovation, big bang approaches or the mantra that we use, fail fast, fail small, quickly do minuscule innovation. Is that the recipe which is going to get us there? Well, I, I think that by by sort of concentrating on the extremes, doing some quick wins and some long-term uh, avoids the, the fat middle. And I think, uh, frankly, that's where a lot of the value is in transformational projects. So sort of midterm uh, digital initiatives that uh, that clearly have some some value at scale. Uh, the long term transformational efforts are risky uh, to me because they don't always work out, and then you've expended uh, you know a lot of resource and energy and so forth over a long term period. And the quick win uh, are are useful in that they generate momentum and buy in and all that jazz, but they don't have a lot of uh, absolute value in, 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 abs- in actual value. So you can, you can point to a win, but you don't really, can't really point to a lot of value. I think the other thing that uh, really isn't you know, reflected in your question is a, a, a lot of these things depend on the context of the particular organization that you're talking about. So in our case, in Magnus' case, it's a, it's a very unique uh, structure in organization. I've... Uh, done quite a bit of management consulting in my background, and I've been to probably 100 companies, and ours is a very unique one in the sense that it's an extremely decentralized environment, uh, and it, that, that decentralization has been very successful and very helpful in our, in our growth and in our uh, uh, geographic expansion and so forth, but decentralized environments have uh, one unique property, and that's generally the absence of few centralized solutions. And a lot of these transformational initiatives, at least the ones that we're working on now, are sort of centralized because transformation in a decentralized environment, while helpful to the, the to the business entities being decentralized, is you know adds some value. Some value you don't you don't get the scale advantages. So to get scale advantages in an organization structure in this way, you need to do something more centralized, and that's where the the, the focus of our efforts are. Uh, and there's various examples that I can point to about um, so how we're trying to do that. 
Uh, I'm not sure that they're all digital, certainly. Uh, I'm not sure that all of them are actually transformational in the traditional sense. I can tell you that they're transformational in the cultural sense because, again, this is a, a decentralized organization that's not used to dealing with centralized solutions. So the word value, right, it can be interpreted or misinterpreted. And it could also right. depend on who you talk to. So could there right. be, to begin with, a, a common definition or nomenclature that can be established on what is truly seen as valuable and what's the unit of measure so that whenever an organization looks at value creation, whether episodic or scalable or, or, or at scale, we are talking about the same thing. Do you think there is confusion in that regard within the organization very typically, as, as I've seen at least? Well, I, I, there's uh, perhaps, I'm not sure confusion is the right word. There's, there's certainly opportunity. So value, at least in a, in a company like this, which is a uh, very bottom-line-driven entrepreneurial manufacturing environment, value is about dollars and cents, period. That's what people respond to. That's what we're... We're obviously a public company. That's what the stock market responds to. So value in that sense is, is, is fairly well understood. There is value in, how should I put this? Many, many companies have discovered value in data, in, in analyzing, uh, exploiting uh, transactional data and uh, being uh, more insightful, making faster business decisions, you know, the whole sort of data argument I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard dozens of times before. So we're just working up to that, that kind of value now, and it's, it's different than a dollars and cents value. Ultimately, hopefully, it translates into dollars and cents, but uh, a lot of the value from data is more, uh, is more qualitative, the ability to make decisions faster, the, the ability to get... Uh, more insight into certain uh, certain business decisions, and so that's a little bit of a uh, another sort of cultural change that we're trying to recognize is the the, the the changing definition of value. So, how about looking at value in terms of what you offer to the people who pay your bills or they pay you money to um, to be with you or to create, and, and, and that's that's how a customer comes into play. So when we talk about right. value creation, it could be to your internal customer or to your partners or to your external right. customers. And when you talk about right. dollars and cents, that's more like an outcome as a result of the value creation. So So while the way I define this all seems to be not fuzzy, but uh, it, it, is, it is not directly measurable, it is experienced by someone, and as a result, we grow as a company. So if I'm creating value for my customer in the whole experience, using digital or even in, in non-digital fashion, that's when they stay with us, and that's what increases the lifetime value of a, uh, a customer. If we take care of right. our partners, they work with us to give us a good uh, supply chain, if you will, or work well with us to, again, create value for whosoever is involved. So is the word value to be defined in terms of the outcome or the, the, uh, the activities which, done in a, which, when done in a cohesive and a thought-out manner, will create the experience? Can I equate value to experience? 
Um, I personally believe that value is about outcomes, right? That that people value outcomes. It's outcomes that drive P&Ls and outcomes that drive stock market price and outcomes that drive customer satisfaction. And, and you know, it's an interesting conversation, but, I, you know, at, at some point you have to kind of draw a line in the sand and declare where, you know, where value is. And um, my line would be on outcomes. So then the next question is, so what drives outcomes? And, of course, it's beyond just dollars and cents. And, and in our industry, dollars and cents happens to be a pretty important. Uh, issue. We are a, uh, essentially a B2B business. So we, we are what's called a tier one supplier. So we make parts that are sold to original equipment manufacturers, uh, Daimler, BMW, uh, Volkswagen, Ford, and so forth, the GMs of the world. So, you know, maybe we have, you know, several dozen customers, right? That's a B2B business. And, and those customers behave in a fairly homogenous manner. It's about cost for them, but it's also about, obviously, quality, warranty experience, time to market, uh, supply chain, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think for, and again, it's so dependent on context of company and industry, and, and, and in, our, in our industry and, and company, value is about outcome and, and some of the factors that I've just mentioned. So let's talk about the value creation by the people who are in the front line. So you may be a manufacturing organization and the person who's working on the shop floor is not truly being exposed to the dollars and cents equation, but it is. A, but he or she still has to be led by showing them a vision of how their contribution helps create value. Well, uh, let me challenge your prem- the premise of the question because here, and again, it's a very unusual conversation. Here, the people on the shop floor are probably the the biggest custodian and champion of value, dollars and cents, and profitability. It's a it's a decentralized, entrepreneurial, bottom up company. And while if you added up all our sales, that adds up to something like forty billion dollars U.S., it's really a collection of something like three hundred and fifty to four hundred. Uh, manufacturing facilities around the world. And each of those manufacturing facilities, and I, quite literally three or four hundred of them around the world in something like 30 countries, and each of those manufacturing facilities are standalone entities, have a P&L uh, uh, on their own, reach, reach customers on their own, and they're really independent businesses. So all the innovation, certainly industrial innovation, and again, there's two kinds of innovation we can talk about. We can talk about industrial innovation on the factory floor, and we can talk about business process innovation at the corporate level, which is something that I'm responsible for. But, uh, you know, it's, and it's completely two different categories. But back to factory floor innovation, all of it takes place on the factory floor. And, you know, our challenge is to contain it, to try and standardize it, so that it can be scaled and to share the, 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 the experiences uh, with everybody around the world. So if we have, and again, it, it's about the granularity and decentralized of our company. So if, if you have a, um, a manufacturing facility in Germany who dreams up some new analytics approach at the, on the plant level for you know, preventative maintenance or IoT or you know, any of those sort of sexy new technologies, what we try and do is to capture that experience and in a sort of a repository, how they did it, what vendor they used, 
you know, their business case, uh, you know, that sort of thing, and and share it with the other 349 plants around the world because they're, you know, it's to us, it's all about sharing sharing the experiences because that's the only way we're going to get scale because the company, again, is this collection of, of, of hundreds of independently managed uh, plants. So the, the secret at scale is to find some way to standardize and share the experiences so that others can, can, can duplicate uh, uh, the innovations that are done on the factory floor. So building upon your example, so you had this one unit which does which gets that spark that idea right. and you would like to right. harness the most value of it and that's where your group comes in but what right. does an organization do to to foster an environment where more of such sparks happen and yes to harness value and to standardize there will be an ongoing engine which we, you will be running but you would like to have many many more such sparks happening and it happens at scale so so when you increase the quantity you don't want to create chaos but at the same time you want more ideas to create value who who is right. in charge of that who owns that part well who owns it so that that's always a difficult question to answer in this company but one of the because of the decentralized nature but one of the the, the sort of the mechanisms that we've introduced recently and had actually quite a bit of success with is uh, we call it the Shark Tank, and and it we're we're trying to mimic a, a television show out of do you, do you know the television show the Shark Tank? Yes, I do. So we form a a, a judge uh, a panel a panel of judges who is equipped with um, a lump of sort of seed money, and then we ask people from various uh, plants around the world to present uh, ideas, innovation ideas. Uh, in 10 minutes, so it's just like the show. They come in, come in front of the panel, they present their idea. Um, the panel decides on whether it's a good idea, we should fund it or not. So, you know, I want to say maybe out of 10 ideas that we see, um, uh, we we approve maybe, well, I don't want to say approve, we fund maybe three Three of them, so thirty percent of them. But what it does is number one, it provides a, me- a mechanism to introduce seed capital to some of these innovation attempts, and number two, it, it introduces an element of, of competition uh, that the guys really kind of find a lot of fun with. It's it's kind of a fun kind of exercise to go through. So it, it's we find it, we find that it's a, it's a good way to um, engage people on the front lines to uh, to to. Yeah, you go introduce innovation in, in their production facilities and, and find ways to create value. So when we are looking at the approach that you are taking in in this race to innovate, and then you, you mentioned that you want to maximize, you are trying to build consistency in there. Right. Does that not cannibalize on each organization, so you've got a federated model, it looks like, you know, separated right. out entities, but they would not want to be contained if one organization or one, one unit is more progressive in their innovation cycle. They don't want to be contained because you are trying to standardize. So so how do you, how do you allow them, what I call is a box, but a very wide and very loosely attached box so that they still are within the structure so it doesn't go very chaotic? But nobody's held back. Well, so 
it's it's a fine balance. Um, we we do try and standardize things, uh, but the reality is that a surprisingly few number of our quote standards are actually mandated. And the standards that we do mandate are those standards that have something to do with cybersecurity or some obvious cosplay, where it's inarguable that everybody ought to be doing the same thing. But for the vast majority of services that we do and um, uh, you know functions that we support, we encourage people. We always try and have a standard. Um, uh, we, we always try to encourage best practice, but we can't insist on it because as soon as we, we insist on, on a particular standard, then basically we're compromising the decentralized operating model, and then, and then that kind of defeats the whole purpose of the company. So it's this fine balance that we're always trying to keep. Um, and even when we, you know, in, in, in the case of uh, industrial innovation on the factory floor, there's very few things that we insist on, uh, but security has to be one of them, and architecture has to be another one. Uh, because uh, if you don't have some commonality in security, uh, there's, there's an obvious uh, implication of that. If you don't have any, any commonality on architecture, then we can turn around five years from now and have just a kind of a mass proliferation of every solution under the book, and, and that's not in anybody's best interest. But short of security and architecture, we don't, we don't enforce order. We, we try and get the guys to talk to each other, to share experiences. One of the biggest levers that we found is um, around innovation, particularly on the, on the factory floor, is exploiting our global vendors. So as the, as the guy who runs global IT, I've got relationships with all the usual suspects, Microsoft, SAP, Accenture, Siemens, you know, big vendors who we spend millions and millions of dollars with every year. So those are checks that, that I ultimately get to sign. And so that gives me a lot of leverage to send a Microsoft or an Amazon or a Siemens to a plant and say, geez, why don't you help those guys out? Why don't you, you know, find $10,000 to do a little bit of seed money for them? And, and, and the vendors are happy to do it. And because we're such a large company, um, my procurement strategy is such that I don't have a single vendor for anything. Right, so I, you know, I have this in the in the process that I've just described, exposing some of my global vendors to you know, factory floor innovation. I can get Amazon uh, to play with one factory and Microsoft to play with another factory, and those Amazon and Microsoft are obviously natural competitors, and so that sets up a sort of a, a competitive landscape in the in the in the uh, on the on the vendor dimension, and that gives us a little bit more uh, clout too. So this, you know, we're, we're trying to be quite thoughtful about it, but we're always walking a line. The decentralized model is very important to this company and it's central to success, but it's kind of the antithesis of, of scale and standards. So we're always trying to balance it. And, you know, we think that we found a, a reasonable way to balance it. We're not perfect, but, you know, we think we found a, a good way to balance it. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's talk about the adoption of anything that is created. So yes, the whole whole uh, approach that Paul, you use to standardize across the board, but then even when you're looking at things like digital, it is best harnessed when you do it in a holistic manner versus as siloed. So if you've got a bunch right. of manual operations and then you've got just one or two isolated digital, that really doesn't kind of take you to where you want to. 
what do we need to right. do so that even when we are introducing such innovations, wherever they triggered from, they are approached holistically versus point solution only because and opportunistic only. What parameters govern it? And how can we get to this ideal state where all innovation is always looks, looked at holistically? Please, So please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Patient-centered care requires a connected enterprise. Are you ready? If you're looking to scale your healthcare IT efforts, visit redmain.com forward slash health today. Whether it's to connect data from multiple partner solutions or developing software for unique needs, Redmain can help. To find out how Redmain can help your company deliver on the patient-centered care promise, visit redmain.com forward slash health or call 773-693-3919. Visit today. Your growing business needs a highly productive workforce, effectively communicating and collaborating without exposing corporate data to cyber attacks. Are you looking to balance security and workforce productivity? Move beyond short-term measures and securely scale your business with BlackBerry Enterprise Mobility Management Solutions. To learn more, please visit blackberry.com forward slash enterprise. Predict your company's future by creating it. Is your workforce able to connect, exchange ideas, and share brilliance simply and securely? Create tomorrow, today. Empower your people to innovate anytime and anywhere with secured BlackBerry Enterprise mobility management and document sharing solutions. To learn more, visit blackberry.com forward slash enterprise. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Paul, let's talk about the siloed or opportunistic approach that people have typically used for innovation. In, in digital, we see more often than not that they would pick up the one which looks the lowest hanging fruit, just work on it without thinking the implications on the rest of the organization. What do you think would be a good way to prevent this? And not just because it's dependent on Paul or some other leader who's going to drive this, but make it more like a process or part of the DNA that anytime when any innovation or value creation is approached, it is done so in a holistic manner? Well, again, it comes back to organizational context, and most of our conversation is focused on factory floor innovation. And, you know, at that level of the organization, the, the notion of siloing doesn't really apply. So the it's a, down there, the entity is the entity. Innovation takes place there. 
and they're free to do whatever they want as long as they uh, meet the, the standards and guidelines that we discussed uh, a couple of minutes ago. The, the other dimension of innovation, digital innovation that we're undertaking, is what I'd call the corporate or, quote, group level. So I should explain that um, for, for argument's sake, we, we make 10 different kinds of auto parts. So we make seats and we make mirrors and so forth. So of the 350 plants that we have, those plants are organized into like products. So there's, there's an organizational entity that we call the seating group that is comprised of the 60 or 70 plants that actually make seats. And that's an organizational entity that exists. There's a president of seating and a whole organization around seating that is responsible for the operation of the plants that make seating around the world. And then there's a corporate layer that sits on top of the groups that provide services, uh, HR, legal, uh, uh, marketing, such that it is in a B2C business or a B2B business, IT, and so forth, on top of all of that. So the, the other dimension of innovation that, that we talk about and we action here is innovation at the corporate and group level that innovates around business processes that apply to all the groups. So from the mundane, uh, you know, travel and expense reporting, uh, capital planning, um, this is a business that's all based on quotations that are, that are sent to our customers. So there's a quotation tracking process. There's all kinds of business processes that take place at the group or corporate level, and that's another element of innovation. And so we very much try to avoid the silos because there's, there in, history has shown that these groups who are very large entities in and of themselves, so MAGDA as a total is a $40 billion uh, in, in revenue. One of the largest groups is actually 12 or $13 billion. So that, that, that's a large company in and of itself. And without proper governance, that group could go and do whatever uh, you know, they choose to in terms of digital innovation. So what we try and do is to introduce cross-functional you know, steering committees across all the groups to encourage them to um, commonly identify transformational digital opportunities, commonly prioritize them, figure out how we're going to fund them, and then throw it over to the fence to, to the, the IT organization to actually implement them. So the short answer is the way that we try and produce silos is, is through cross-functional steering committees with, with governance responsibilities. And it's a, that's a classic response to a, to a federated kind of, um, kind of company. And, you know, again, I, I've made the point a number of times that all of these, all of these, these, these issues depend on sort of the structure of the company. We, we happen to be a, what in management literature would be described as a federated company. I'm quite familiar with one of our competitors, a little smaller than us, uh, based in France called uh, Forencia, or Forencia, however it's pronounced. And they have, they're maybe two-thirds of our size. They have several hundred plants around the world in the, in the exact same industry and, and a direct competitor. And interestingly enough, I've, I've shared more than a beer or two with the CIO there, and they're 100% centralized. So they are the kind of the antithesis of uh, the way that we run things, the way that we run IT anyways. Um, so they're a pretty successful business. We're a pretty successful business. So it, I, I guess the moral of the story is that, that you can have different 
radically different organizational structures and be, be successful, then it all depends on culture, cultural adaptation and, and how the company chooses to leverage the, the organizational model that's in place. And see, the traditional manufacturing, of course, had its own um, fundamentals, if you will. But then with the advent of something specially like IoT, where your OEM is no longer just going to build a widget and sell it and be done. Now you'll be joined at the hip with the product itself, depending on what you're producing. And well, depending that's on what we're producing. Yes, exactly. So, so I'm not sure, of course, we do not uh, have clarity yet on this conversation, at least on what your organization may be producing. But if an organization is in manufacturing and is producing something which has got the tentacles, the IoT-centric tentacles connected to their products, then your value creation doesn't stop at creating a widget on the factory floor. There is a lot more that will get attached to it, and in digital age, it will have an, a potential for ongoing innovation beyond just on the factory floor. So if you were to take that as the context and a, a context where there is a lot of shift possible, even traditional manufacturing companies are also going in this direction, what does that do to your approach to creating value at scale? So that's a that's a very good question. So up up to now, this conversation has talked about process innovation on the factory floor largely. What you're talking about is product innovation, and you know it's an interesting topic because more and more of products in this sphere and more and more of our products are subjected to um, uh, product innovation, and uh, these 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 products are largely electronic in nature. Um, so if I look at, if one segments the, the sort of the, the stuff that, that Magnet produces, and this is how we sort of organize the company, we have um, a particular sort of super group of our company that's called Power and Vision that uh, manufactures the video cameras, the LiDAR sensors, uh, all of the sort of the, the components that go into an autonomous driving or driverless cars or what we call ADAS, which stands for Advanced Driver Assist System. So all of the sort of the disruptive technology that, that your readers are reading about. So we're, you know, major players in that world. And then a portion of our company makes the traditional frames and, uh, you know, pumps and that sort of thing that, that you know, automotive parts makers have been making for years. And, and then there, there are some surprising products that we make that have um, um, surprising amount of technology value add. Uh, if you think about a seat, so in a, in a you know a half decent car, you know a luxury or semi luxury car, a seat, you know it's got you know eight dimension power power seat. It's heated, it's cooled, it, it it's an extremely complicated. Uh, 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 piece to, to manufacture. It's often manufactured to spec on the fly, you know, uh, uh, just in time basis. There's all kinds of electronics in, in, in involved in that world. So the point is that a portion of our products have this sort of electronic uh, component to them, and we're just a supplier to the industry, right? So 
um, there is emerging in the automotive industry a set of standards that uh, on how all of these products can communicate with each other because in a car there's a there's a sort of a standard bus that all these products sit on uh, so how are we going to uh, protect all these products from cybersecurity hacking how are we going to do integration um, there are emerging uh, standards around all of that and I think uh, quite frankly I think the industry is it, it's a it's a work in progress. Nobody's actually prepared a definitive standard for, for any of that. And, and all the OEMs and all of the big uh, the Tier 1 part suppliers are, I wouldn't say struggling with that because uh, struggle implies that there's unknowns, but there's a lot of options and uh, a lot of opportunities to scale. And because we're a Tier 1 supplier as opposed to the ultimate customer who's the OEM, we, we, we don't control the supply chain. We just participate in the supply chain. And especially when you are in this connected or smart manufacturing type of era and your products may end up connecting, then it is no longer even just centered around product because once it's sold, there's a lot of data coming and then you're supposed to create value adds using that data and and create value for them, right? So, so, So this creates a totally different or rather spawns an ecosystem which transcends the product itself. Uh, I agree. Could, it's a different value chain entirely that that can arise from that. It's still sort of a little hypothetical, but it it can arise from that. Uh, and I think the jury's still out on whether it is. You know, if you if you take a look at the automotive industry in general, it's probably one of the most uh, disrupted or soon to be disrupted industries available on earth. I mean, there's you know, the, the basic automotive manufacturing industry has been around for something like 120 years. And in the last five and the next five, there's just so many things that are going to disrupt it, electrification, driverless cars, uh, mobilities of service, all that jazz. It's going to you know, profoundly disrupt the, the automotive business and, and thereby its suppliers. And we, we obviously have to learn to, to adapt to that. But so one, one is- of the value chains that I think that you're referring to is the value of a data once a car is in flight or once the car has been sold. Uh, so do we put sensors in the frame to uh, detect stress, for example, in the frame and, and thereby predict the failure of the frame or you know, something along those lines? Do we um, take all the data from a, from a driverless car that, by the way, we don't control and somehow use big data or AI techniques to take a look at the driverless car behavior and what led to an accident or a stressful, a stressful trip, and try and you know develop some sort of relationship with that. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's. Uh, I, I accept your point that there's a, a huge potential value from all of that. It's difficult as a supplier in this industry to um, to lead it. Maybe there are some competitive advantages for us, but you know we're a B to we're a B to B company, and we kind of. We kind of sell what our customers, what our OEM customers ask us to build, right? So in a way, we're sort of at the behest of them, and a potential source of a competitive advantage for us is to, to kind of figure out what, what, you know, what these additional value chains are and how, how it might appeal to them. So are you or your people on the floor or in your corporate are all waiting for the innovation to be triggered by your OEMs for you to start thinking or you're taking ideas to them to say, hey, this is how we can disrupt? And does 
lead the change? Well, so a, a, a hybrid. We're certainly not waiting for everybody, for anybody. Um, it's as, as I've tried to explain. It's it's difficult for us to be the hundred percent or the exclusive leader of change because we're a supplier to an industry that manufactures vehicles from our parts. But we can be an aggressive contributor to sort of defining the future. So, for example, uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't know about is that Magna has a fairly substantial investment in Lyft, which is, you know, the other Uber. And that was a strategic investment. It's, it's a meaningful investment. I think it's public knowledge that we spent, I think it's a $200 million investment in Lyft. And so that's, that's something that we took on ourselves to partner with them to understand all the implications of driverless cars and uh, uh, how how that technology could perhaps impact our technology in in simple ways. So, for example, Magna is the number one, the world's biggest manufacturer of, of automotive video cameras, you know, the little camera that sits on your bumper and shows you what's behind you. So we're the guys who make all those cameras. We must, we must make millions of them, right? So that, that seems like a trivial example, but we have a capability in electronics, and we apply that capability to beyond the trivial. So we're also a fairly large supplier of LiDAR, which is the uh, LiDAR is sort of like radar that uses uh, laser beams instead of radio beams. And it's the LiDAR senses in all these driverless cars that kind of figure out what's in front of the car. Right, so we are the manufacturer of the bits and pieces that define the future of driverless cars, and where we try to package them up, uh, we've got we've done a number of innovations around packaging them up, making sort of driverless, uh, sort of a, a driverless car start pack. I can't remember the, the the official name of it, but we've got a sort of a a starter kit for OEMs who you know who are behind can kind of use our technology. So. I guess your question was, are we waiting, are we following? We're, we're pretty aggressive to the extent that we can, right? And again, we, we can't because we can't be the, the, the absolute leader in this because we're part of a, uh, a global, very tightly integrated and complicated supply chain to which we're not the end. We make parts for the, the, the OEM guys. So that's our mission. Yeah, let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and let's talk about the uncertainty, the volatility, the ambiguity, if possible, and and see what are those doing to impact our ability to create value at scale, and is there something we can do as an organization in terms of its design, or whatever other things we could change so that the uncertainty and the volatility don't cripple us, but instead we are able to manage them effectively and and move ahead and charge ahead and create value at scale. So please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Patient-centered care requires a connected enterprise. Are you ready? If you're looking to scale your healthcare IT efforts, visit redmain.com forward slash health today. Whether it's to connect data from multiple partner solutions or developing software for unique needs, Redmain can help. To find out how Redmain can help your company deliver on the patient-centered care promise, visit redmain.com forward slash health or call 773-693-3919. Visit today. 
Your growing business needs a highly productive workforce, effectively communicating and collaborating without exposing corporate data to cyber attacks. Are you looking to balance security and workforce productivity? Move beyond short-term measures and securely scale your business with BlackBerry Enterprise Mobility Management Solutions. To learn more, please visit blackberry.com forward slash enterprise. Predict your company's future by creating it. Is your workforce able to connect, exchange ideas, and share brilliance simply and securely? Create tomorrow, today. Empower your people to innovate anytime and anywhere with secured BlackBerry Enterprise mobility management and document sharing solutions. To learn more, visit blackberry.com forward slash enterprise. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, uh, Paul, when we are looking at value creation, that's all good, and, and we have to move forward. But there is also a sentiment that things are moving way too fast, that there is... Uh, a dynamically shifting marketplace disruption is happening, which is fundamentally creating uncertainty on how we will be positioned in the new environment where the market players, the market dynamic will be changing and continually changing. So do you think there is a way for us to insulate ourselves from the uncertainty and the volatility while we are creating value or while we are attempting to create value at scale? Well, so I think there's things that we can do organizationally uh, to protect us, insulate, I suppose, is, is a good word. Not, not 100% because it's a, it's a new reality out there. Right? And, and again, um, there, there's more disruption expected in the automotive industry in the next five years than, than probably what occurred in the last half a century, right? So it, it is certainly a different environment. I, I, I think what we can do organizationally is find a way to be, to number one, be much more agile, be much more nimble. Um, you know, so this is a big place. We have something like 175,000 employees around the world, and we have to find ways to um, identify opportunities very quickly to respond to them very quickly, to fail fast if they don't look like they're going to be good ideas, to get funding uh, much faster than the traditional way, uh, because this is is an old-style sort of manufacturing business and, you know, capital has to be approved and all that jazz. So I think that there's, there's ways to organize to be much nimbler and much swifter there are cultural changes that have to be introduced that say it's okay to fail. Like take take you know whatever it is. Take two or three months, 
see if there's something there. If there's nothing there, it doesn't matter that you've spent whatever, a million dollars, let's move on to the next one. That's a very different mentality than conventional manufacturing, which is, you know, you know, very much, you know, margin profitability oriented down to the last penny. So there's, I guess my point is that there are organizational and cultural things we can do to change our behaviors to insulate us in the way that you've described. Is it going to be 100% insulation? Obviously not. Uh, but the, the sort of the risk-return profile in this business has, has changed substantially. And uh, we, we need to get on board with that or else, you know, the, it's a sort of it's almost an existential kind of question. This is the way that the, the industry is moving and we, and we have to uh, modify and adapt to, uh, to behave in a, in a manner that, that keeps us agile and ahead of the ahead of the competition, a lot of it has to do with data. This is a, all all of these fields are extremely data intensive. IoT, analytics, AI, uh, you know, almost all the things that we've talked about, even conventional uh, innovation around uh, corporate business processes, are all about data. And that's a challenge that we have here to to deal with. We understand what they are, and and you know, we're working hard to. Uh, put the appropriate foundational investments in place to, to manage data and hire the right people. So any specific tactic has been bearing the most fruits for you in this area where you kind of create a good insulation against the volatility and get your people to stay motivated and uh, the resources to keep coming so your value creation doesn't stall? Well, we've come a long way in forming little sort of, uh, I'll call them uh, research and development sort of SWAT teams to take a premise, uh, find the data, uh, identify the data that's necessary to validate the premise, even if it's sending people to a plan or something, uh, do the tooling in a very quick and dirty manner that we would never, uh, never have done before. So, you know, and then many of the, many of these ideas that deal with you know, ter- terabytes or, or petabytes, uh, petabytes worth of data. So in the old days, it would be unthinkable to deal with data like that. So now we can call up Amazon, and you know, within 15 minutes, we've got a, a drive in the sky ready to do it. So we, we've we've got several examples of of innovative approaches to to solving data oriented problems or or, or address data oriented opportunities. Um, that's been quite fruitful for us and, and is quite different than sort of the status quo, the way that the company really works, usually works. Let's talk briefly about the people because they are the ones who are essentially uh, going to be leading the charge or supporting the innovation and value creation. Now, not everyone signed up for this when they joined or right. they, they, they are also not ready to uh, not everyone is ready to move wherever the company wants to move. So you cannot just keep firing people either. How do you balance all of this? Well, so first of all, not everybody's wired for sort of the transformation that you're described, right? So, you know, to, to lead transformational uh, efforts or even to participate in them, you have to be brave. You have to be able to challenge the status quo, think about new solutions, say things that, that others might not want to say. Uh, not everybody is wired for transformation, and I, and I think we, there's something wrong with that. We need to recognize that because it, it takes a, a pragmatic mix of people. Not everybody's wired to do sort of business as usual. 
And I think the reality is not, notwithstanding all of the sort of exciting and interesting things we've talked about on this call, a large percentage of our business is still sort of business as usual, crank out the parts and make some money, right? So there, there has to be... There has to be a balance in, in, in that approach because you risk sacrificing the, the, the sort of the current state of affairs to, to seize a future state of affairs that, as we've acknowledged in this call, is undefined and uncertain and all that jazz. So there, there has to be a balance in approach in the way you deal with people and the way that you uh, train people and the way that you recruit people. I mean, it's clear that our recruitment uh, approaches have changed in the last five or ten years. It's clear that the set of competencies and skills we need to uh, effectively compete in the future uh, are completely different. I mean, three years ago, I've only been here four years. Four years ago, if I said we ought to hire a data scientist, people would look at me like I have horns. Well, guess what? We have, I don't know how many, but we've got more than a few data scientists now, and all they do is deal with the data. So it's a, you know, it's, there, there's, I think there's many solutions to it, but it begins with a, a recognition of, of sort of pragmatism that you have to have a balance, uh, in anything that you do. So when you are looking at such people who are um, coming up with, with these ideas, right, and the ones who are being hired, are you going to base that, that style of hiring or style of motivating based on what you do today? Or are you going to look five years ahead while you do not have a crystal ball, but then you will end up have to phase out people who want to do the same old, same old. Well, is, so is there... I think that the latter part is, is probably a little premature. I think, you know, th- things in this industry take, take some time to change. There is no doubt that new skill sets are required and, new, and therefore new recruiting techniques are necessary. And the engineer that we would have hired five years ago, the, the specs on that engineer, the, like the personality specs on that engineer would be quite different um, we have several thousand software developers working for us, writing uh, code behind our electronic products. That's a you know a, a growing area, and, and you know in that in that area we're competing with the Googles and the Amazons and everybody else looking for coders, right? So there's there's certain skill sets that that we're missing, and, and recruitment techniques are absolutely going to have to change and be different than what they were. But there is a meaningful portion of this business that uh, we think is going to be around for quite some time because we basically, if you think there's going to be vehicles on the road, then we've got a lot of content in just about every vehicle on the road anywhere in the world, right? So, you know, again, you have to, I think you have to sort of take a balanced approach um, and, and take this innovation in stride that, you know, it's, it's not going to represent the lion's share of what we're going to be doing, at least in the next you know, decade or so. You know, I think all bets are off in the in the in the distant future. So, a question regarding compassion, uh, compassion and care, and what we are looking at is disruption. You mentioned your organization is is going to measure everything based on dollars and cents, but the ones who are going to help make you or keep you relevant as an organization are the people who f- should feel that the the organization cares for them. How do you prevent this mindless chase 
of something new coming, keeping the lights on, or more than keeping the lights on, keeping our sh shareholders happy uh, from cannibalizing and, and destroying the, the culture, which is people-centric. Well, so the, the company has a fairly long history of a very uh, paternalistic, uh, people-oriented uh, environment. Uh, we've got, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, 175,000 employees around the world. A, a shockingly small percentage of them are unionized. Uh, we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy uh, concentrating on, on taking care of our teams. We have a, a chart of rights that has been in existence since the, you know, essentially the company's existence uh, formation 60 years ago. So we think that we're, we're much better than average in terms of uh, establishing care, compassionate culture, taking care of our people, and, um, uh, you know, try and, try and uh, behave in ways that are not ruthless, that try and reap. I, I know in, in, in my operation, so as disruption takes place in IT. We, we use fewer and fewer on-premise services and more and more uh, servers at Amazon and Google and, and, uh, and Microsoft and so forth. Well, that results in change of many people's jobs. We don't need as many guys to run servers. We need more guys to go call up Amazon and have them run servers. That doesn't necessarily result in job losses. It results in job repurposing. And so we take the company as a whole takes that sort of responsibility to repurpose people uh, very seriously. And, and I think in, in any of the examples that we've talked about, there are opportunities to repurpose people, to get them retrained. Uh, you know, once we have, you know, an employee who's, who's, who's part of the family, uh, that has value to us, and we'd rather repurpose, retrain them than to just sort of discard them on the on the heap of disruptive change. On behalf of the show and our listeners, thanks so much, uh, Paul, for sharing your thoughts uh, and insights regarding how organizations can take very specific, concrete steps towards the creation of value at scale. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And listeners, please like us on Facebook, search for CTN, CIO Talk Network, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and join our LinkedIn group. Thanks again for listening to this segment on CTN. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit ciotalknetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.